Your film is now ready to be shown. Good afternoon. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. That was the sound of demonstrators in Times Square singing an anthem to Ukraine and calling for Russia to end its aggression. It's been just days since Russia launched an illegal war to invade Ukraine, and the people there are fighting valiantly against a more heavily resourced military. Individual citizens are picking up weapons and making Molotov cocktails to repel the invaders. In this special episode of the podcast, we're going to consider questions related to disinformation and the information ecosystem and the role of the tech platforms in this deadly moment. My first guest is Clint Watts, a national security contributor for NBC News and MSNBC, and author of Messing with the Enemy, Surviving in a Social Media World of Hackers, Terrorists, Russians, and Fake News. His research and writing focuses on terrorism, counterterrorism, social media influence, and Russian disinformation, and he has testified before multiple Senate committees regarding Russia's information warfare campaign against the U.S. and West. I'm Clint Watts. Distinguished Research Fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute and non-resident fellow at the Alliance for Securing Democracy. So, Clint, just hours ago, you published this piece, Russia's Lies in Four Directions, the Kremlin's Strategy to Misinform About Ukraine, Many Messages Targeting Many Audiences. And you've got four quadrants here, uh, summaries and themes of what Russia's doing to target its messaging inside Russia, inside Ukraine, and to outside audiences. Um, tell us first, what is Russia trying to communicate to its domestic audience? Yeah, I think if I could just layer with that is oftentimes when I talk to doubters of Russian propaganda and disinformation, they'll say, oh, that message is stupid. No one believes that. And when I hear them say that, I almost immediately respond with, it's not designed for you. Meaning that the message you're seeing is it always about you? We tend to take it that way because we're exposed to it. So we think, oh, the Russians are trying to convince me of such and such. That's stupid. But that's not always the case. It's not really designed for you. And oftentimes the one, the message that is designed for you is the one where you stop and say, you know, they have a point. And when you hear, uh, when I hear people say that, I, you're in Brooklyn, Justin, right? So Edward Snowden is a great example. I mean, he is the example, I think, for, you know, uh, the political left in the U.S., which we should evaluate, right? There are a good point, but the problem is it's designed around an enduring campaign and that's how it works. Three-fourths of the time you say, 
uh, what the audience wants to hear one fourth of the time you say what you want them to hear. And so like, that's the process over time and why it works over a decade. So everything that we've seen in the last two to three weeks in terms of us and NATO allies, you know, exposing disinformation has been justifications for war in Ukraine and provocations, false flag operations, you know, bogus shelling. That's really the Russians shell themselves or blow up a building in their own controlled territory to make it look like the Ukrainians did it. None of that is designed for the West, really. Uh, sure, if it worked, they would take it. Most of it is designed for Russian audiences on Russian social media platforms in Russia. So VK, uh, Russian state media. And that's to design essentially a campaign to justify the reason for war and rationale because it's going to be Russian soldiers, Russian citizens that are going to go die in that war. And so that's just conditioning the audience and justification. Russian messaging inside is is sustained and it's also a bit delayed. So I would say like, they're talking about, we should invade. It's like, well, you already did, <laughs> right? So like sometimes when you're watching it, you're like, uh, don't they know like they have already crossed the border and they're in there? You know, I'm not sure all Russians entirely understand that just because Russia can control its own media environment. Now it trickles in. It's not iron. It's not locked down entirely, but uh, the volume of information is going to be the Russian story. That has definitely changed, I think, in the last 24 hours, which is Russians know now, like, not only is there a big invasion, but we're not on board with it. Um, there's some cracks in the foundation, even Russian leaders speaking out against Putin. That's a huge deal. You don't do that in Russia. And so you're, you're seeing the cracks there. And I think the other big change is that trying to essentially dehumanize Ukrainians uh, so that you can justify killing, which is a classic technique in all war propaganda is you have to dehumanize your enemy to justify what you want to do to them because it's quite awful. So saying that the leaders of Ukraine are Nazis or radicals, um, which is, uh, you know, stuff that we're even seeing on, on Twitter. Yeah, I, you'll even hear it trickle into the U.S. And I'll, I'll come to that last. But turning the story into the justification is Nazis. That is playing on historical roots of Russian history. That is very important to Putin and his intelligence services to always tie back to their version of history and restate things in that context, because there's a lot of Russian pride around defeating the Nazis in World War II. So that justification, you know, hits home if you believe it. There's also this weird wrinkle to that, which is the Russians court a lot of Nazis <laughs> around the world. I mean, they have hard fascist white supremacists, white nationalist groups inside Russia. The leader of the most dangerous uh, U.S white supremacist group, the base lives in Russia right now. So yeah, just it, they're always playing both sides to their advantage. So before we move to Russian messaging in Ukraine, what is Russia trying to say to its diaspora? How is that different from what it's communicating to a domestic audience? Yeah. So the extension of Russian influence is always the Russian diaspora because there's sympathies, natural sympathies people have to their homeland. And so they're consistently uh, messaging in Russian language to the Russian diaspora. Um, the most important one, I would say, by the way, is in Germany. And that is sort of the linchpin of NATO and every, everything around the EU. But what's really crazy to watch is in a lot of the former Soviet states, there's no coverage at all of the Ukraine conflict. You wouldn't even really know that it's going on. And this comes at a time where those states might be the next ones to be invaded. And so if you watch the news this morning, Kazakhstan after getting bailed out by the Russians, I think it was just a month ago, one to two months ago, uh, when they had an internal uprising, said, we're not, we're not going to send troops to Ukraine. And I bet that did not go over well in the Kremlin this morning. They're, they're probably like, hey, we came and bailed you out and kept you in power. 
but you're you're seeing a lot of these former Soviet states have to pick sides. Belarus is a super strong an- ally, basically an extension of Putin, you know, at this point. Separately, it's about discrimination from NATO and EU. And this falls in line with Putin's other broader goal, which is to remake the Warsaw Pact, essentially, bring all Russians abroad under the Russian umbrella. So let's go next to Russia messaging to Western audiences, um, in particularly to probably uh, in, in, in some ways try to justify what we're all seeing in our free media. Yeah, so they're still making it as uh, one, these are peacekeepers because that's Western language. And that's hard to argue with if you know about the Balkans, you know, in the 90s, uh, EU, NATO peacekeeping missions abroad. It, it tricks the audience to where they have to be like, well, there does need to be peace. I want peace, right? So they're they're using that rationale. But if you watch the invasion plan, there's there's no peace being made. There's there's destruction being you know brought into that country. I don't think it works. You know, I don't think anyone's falling for it uh, in that in that instance. The other is the humanitarian angle. We're there to like de- deliver aid and goods. They're they're creating the opposite. You know, this is all a play. All, again, I don't think it's really working. But the ones that are working and do spread and of all places here in the United States is that uh, Russia is justified in what it's doing because the U.S. has done this in the past, which is always, you know, taking it the other direction. The other aspect of it is that we want strong leaders and strong leaders are what we need. Russian nationalism, nations rather than globalist. This has been built up in our country here in the U.S. And that's why you saw in a couple of these uh, recent sessions. Uh, there was one last night with what's her name, Marjorie Taylor Greene. I mean, they're out there cheering for Putin openly. Uh, if you went into their uh, social media communities, and these are public communities, this isn't private. They're buying Putin T-shirts. Uh, you know, they're they're taking in the propaganda full force. They're advocating for Putin against President Biden, and I think that's where this connective tissue of Russia with the far right in Germany, France, the UK. Uh, some Scandinavian countries, Canada, some, but the U.S. most importantly, has really paid off for them to the degree where the the plan was always to have Americans fight each other rather than them unified fighting us. And we have it a little bit today. I think it's not working as well as it was a week ago, by the way. Next, let's just talk about what Russia is trying to do inside Ukraine, what we're able to assess of that. Yeah. So inside Ukraine, they're just trying to say that Zelensky is going to fall. He's going to abandon you. The Ukrainian military is inept and corrupt, and it's all going to fall apart. And that's just not going to work because inside Ukraine right now, it's circled the wagons. You've got foot patrols out in the streets, you know, this morning with AK-47s going up against Russian special forces, just shooting straight. I mean, the Ukrainians did far better than I expected on day one and two. The casualty numbers and the killed in action are incredible. If if it keeps going the way that it's going by the end of the weekend, the Russians might very well have lost in terms of dead more than we lost in the entire war on terror over 20 years. Just think about that. I mean, that's going to be a shock to Russians that can't be hidden. Um, so it's not working. It's not going to work. I think Ukrainians are probably more unified now than they ever were uh, before. So I did just want to get your assessment of the overall, uh, you know, war effort there and and the Ukrainian resistance. You know, your way around a combat zone. You uh, were part of that war on terror. I know that you don't have access to special intelligence or uh, any particular information that's not available uh, to the rest of us. But 
what is your personal reflection on what you're seeing right now? Ukrainians could not do any better than they're doing right now. I mean, I'm super impressed with them. I don't have anything special like insights on it other than what you see like in social media. I gather the same stuff and I, I listen to certain experts, you know, on television that I know are, are really strong. General Hurtling, who's on CNN, he's really good. He was a commander uh, basically in, in NATO forces at times. And so, yeah, I think we all thought they would get mowed down and they close on Kiev already. They'll close on Kiev eventually. And this is where it just comes down to alliances. So day one to seven, the Ukrainians are doing as good as they can. And I'm super impressed with their ability to fight off the Russians. The Russians have not massed all their combat power, as we would say, in the country yet. They will. There are no allies. There are no backups. There's not enough ammunition. And so day one to seven is euphoria. It's your morale versus their morale. Day seven to 14, it becomes a stalemate. Day 14 and beyond they lose, you know, there's just no way to sustain that fight without support. And so I think that's why you're seeing the discussion very openly as to number one, we got to get humanitarian aid in there right away. We saw the run on banks. We saw fuel, we saw food. They won't be able to make it too long. Second, at a minimum, they got to have ammunition to keep this up. And this fight very clearly comes down to two weapons over others, stingers and javelins. Uh, javelins are, you know, ground to ground uh, anti-tank weapons, highly sophisticated, highly lethal. That's why the, they're knocking out T-80 Russian tanks, which are some of the best tanks ever made. Um, Stingers is for air power. Um, and you're, they, the Russians have lost an incredible number of jets. Apparently, it sounds like at least two transport planes went down overnight. You're talking 500 dead and two shots. Uh, that really wallops the Russians. So, when those run out and are depleted, it gets pretty dire uh, for the Ukrainians. And I think that just comes to the discussions around no-fly zone today. That's going to create a NATO versus Russia war. And now we're talking much bigger problems. Uh, then we're, it, you know, the onion's going to unpeel. We're talking cyber attacks on scales like we've never seen. Threats of nuclear. I don't think there'll be a nuclear exchange, but you never know. I never would have thought, you know, Russia would launch a full-scale invasion of Ukraine to take it over at one time. So it's hairy right now. I think this just goes to, I think Americans will have a big decision to make, which is what we're going to fight for. And I'm hoping this is a galvanizing moment from here forward. Just a last question about the information environment. You've got, you know, of course, Facebook, Google, Twitter, TikTok, uh, other platforms that are essentially serving as you know, a main line into Western audiences for the Kremlin and, and the vast propaganda apparatus that it has built. And, you know, as you mentioned, just at the outside of our conversation has utilized for more than a decade. What do you think they should be doing right now? Wipe them out. It's very straightforward at this point. You know, look how many other smaller authoritarian countries we have gone after with Western platforms, uh, Rohingya, right? And Myanmar, whenever it's like these small countries, the tech platforms, they're all very righteous and stand up and say, let's get them, you know, let's run them down. I mean, this is very clear. Not only, uh, you know, are the, is the Russian state media apparatus part and parcel of this invasion, they are more so than any other country's information, right? Like no country wields information in a way uh, like the Russians are doing. And it, it is distorting people's understanding of the truth. So this comes down to lies being broadcast globally in many different languages. 
And it is the one weapon they have against the West that without it, it becomes very, very tough for them. Very tough. And this, this isn't just about this invasion. It's the reason we should do it, but it's about COVID-19 and vaccines. It's about election interference in our democracies. It's about rallying white supremacists, you know, to target people. I, I, I don't know what more needs to be said or what more evidence needs to be there, but uh, whether it's tech companies or really any co- companies moving forward, they got to pick a side and there's going to be three. There's going to be China's world. There's going to be the U.S. world. There's going to be distorted versions in between. I should say U.S. and EU are pretty much in line. But yeah, we, people have to pick a side. Watts, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. My next guest is Taylor Lorenz, a reporter covering tech culture and online creators who has worked for the New York Times, The Atlantic, and recently joined the Washington Post as a columnist. Taylor wrote this week for Input Mag about meme scams capitalizing on the Ukraine conflict, and I spoke to her about what they say about our social media-driven information ecosystem. I'm Taylor Lorenz, and I'm a technology reporter, and I recently wrote a piece for Input Magazine. So this piece, scammy Instagram war pages are capitalizing on Ukraine conflict. Beware, despite their claims, these accounts are not run by journalists on the ground. Tell me what it is you came across. As the war started to break out on Wednesday, um, I started to see these accounts um, with hundreds of thousands of followers being promoted by large meme pages. Um, The main one was um, at Live from Ukraine. And I saw meme pages with millions of followers basically saying, follow this on the ground journalist who is running this account um, and another account called POV Warfare uh, for updates. And so I being a journalist myself was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. Um, And I started to look into this network of pages. They were claiming to be on the ground Ukrainian journalists. And um, it was quickly revealed to me that they were not. Um, They were sort of run by meme page admins in the U.S. So you ran across this, uh, you you got to the bottom of, of one of the pages in particular, uh, the the live from uh, Ukraine page, and Mm -hmm. turns out it's a kid in Kentucky. Exactly. It's a 21-year-old in Kentucky who actually himself manages a large network of content pages. Prior to being a page about Ukraine, the account was actually a war page about Afghanistan. And then he had kind of pivoted it to a general page posting viral videos that were kind of right-leaning, like clips of Joe Biden flubbing things or um, clips of people, you know, shoplifting. Uh, And then when the crisis broke out in Ukraine, he pivoted it to Ukraine updates. And how many followers uh, does this particular page have at the moment? Um, The account had hundreds of thousands of followers. It had 218,000 followers before going on private, um, which is sort of a growth tactic that meme pages do. So you have to request to follow. Um, He said that he had hundreds of thousands of requests by the hour. Um, I think given the size of the meme pages that were promoting it, which are like in the millions, I think it was definitely growing by the tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands by the hour. 
So this young man tells you he's not in it for the money, but you found that that might not necessarily be the case. Yeah. I mean, whether I think whether it's directly or not directly, it's undeniably in it for the money. I mean, this account was an Afghanistan account and then is suddenly posting ads for OnlyFans creators and building an audience, as we know, on the Internet is its own form of currency. um, And that can eventually translate into money. So I think accruing hundreds of thousands or millions of followers on an account that you're creating a valuable asset that you will probably end up monetizing in some way. This man is also not extremely trustworthy. So I would not believe necessarily his claims that he will never advertise on the page, although that is what he said he would do. The page is now taken down because it was blatantly violating terms. Um, Instagram removed a bunch of war pages that were, that were like this uh, last night. Is it your impression that Instagram's efforts to moderate this phenomenon are succeeding? Uh, no, <laughs> I think I think Instagram, like all social networks, uh, has a big problem with disinformation and propaganda and things. You know, I know that TikTok also had a bunch of false videos going viral. I think this is a the fundamentally a problem about media literacy. I think that we're always going to see things that are maybe like misconstrued, um, but it's, well, it's not, it, it's sort of a twofold thing. One, Instagram should have should shut these pages down that are blatantly mischaracterizing themselves. Um, you know, that's, that's a violation of terms and it, that's what they did do. But I think also, you know, as soon as one page gets shut down, another crops up in its place. So it's a bit of a whack-a-mole. And I think um, users also need to learn to recognize what's real and what's not. So Facebook says it's set up a special operations center to handle the conflict in Ukraine, um, presumably to you know, put special resources against uh, the problem of, of disinformation or false accounts or you know, other kinds of issues that might uh, produce content that violates its, its terms of service. We've seen these types of efforts before. Uh, do you think it's enough uh, to overcome the kind of general underlying architecture of these no. platforms? No, not even remotely. I mean, just look at the top content that's shared on Facebook daily. It's almost exclusively, you know, far right content creators known for seeding disinformation. So, you know, I don't, it's great that they are saying that they have some sort of little uh, task force for Ukraine, but this is a, this is a systemic problem that's core to the platform that the platform has failed to address. Um, and, and not only have they failed to address it, they constantly reward this type of extreme content or disinformation or propaganda. I mean, literally like Dan Bungino, you know, is a top voice on Facebook or Ben Shapiro, some of these other right-wing disinformation purveyors. So I just don't, yeah, I don't think that they're really doing anything other than maybe a PR effort around it. You have written about this phenomenon, phenomenon of internet influencers, social media. Um, You're one of the best known voices on this subject. Does this particular conflict, the way this is playing out, does any of this surprise you? Or is this just the sort of most extreme possible iteration of the phenomena you've been writing about for years? Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't even think this is the most extreme. I think it's getting progressively more and more extreme. This is definitely an indication of where we're going. Um, I've written a lot about meme pages and content creators in this viral content ecosystem, but now we're seeing it applied to things like war or elections or, you know, 
where the stakes are higher, things where things where it's more dangerous. Um, I was saying, actually, speaking of TikTok, in January there was this whole uh, sort of viral mob around this thing called West Elm Caleb, which basically this guy that went viral on Tinder for being a bad date and ghosting women. This viral campaign against him broke out, and within. 48 hours, he had been doxxed, you know, people were trying to get him fired and, and ruin his life. And, and videos with millions and millions of views were kind of slandering him. That might not seem like a big deal when it's against a shitty guy on Tinder, but you can see where these online dynamics can be like weaponized or leveraged for really bad things. I mean, just imagine if January 6th, for instance, had played out um, or been planned more aggressively on TikTok, right? Like these, the way that these platforms are evolving, it actually kind of feeds into the worst aspects of the content ecosystem rather than improving it. You know, we don't have steps that tamp down on virality because all of these platforms are still fundamentally oriented around maximizing engagement. And the content creator ecosystem is also just becoming more and more distributed. So you see legacy media losing power and the rise of, you know, these content creators that are getting increasingly radicalized. I also just want to ask you a little bit about, you know, what you think the this phenomenon ends up doing to kind of the public understanding of these events. I was going to read this quote. Um, this this just really struck me. This is the a young man, Hayden, uh, who says he's in Kentucky. Um, you quote him as saying, I don't really know what's going on with all this political tension. I'm just trying to document what's going on. I can't really verify uh, these videos myself. He's just kind of uh, trying to to run up the score on his his number of follows. I, you know, I don't know. <laughs> We're all trying to understand what's going on in this terrible crisis. Um, and we've got how many Haydens out there? I mean, probably many, many, many more than you would think. I think that this is, especially when you look at young people, I think they innately understand the value of having a following. Um, if you have power online and you have an audience online and you have a community online, you can kind of do whatever you want. You can act with impunity. Your followers will always you know, support you. You can monetize that audience. You can use it to run for office. You can use it to become you know, famous. You can kind of, you just have this power that it's very hard to take away. And I think that um, young people like Hayden recognize that. And so when these big events happen, they hop on them. You know, this is kind of like, it's like throwing red meat to a bunch of tigers, you know, it's like, Ooh, an opportunity let's seize on it. And there's no sense of kind of morality in it. And I think that's dangerous. Are there other phenomena related to the conflict in Ukraine that you're watching at the moment? I mean, I write a lot about big influencers, content creators. Uh, I saw this one woman from a Ukrainian uh, nonprofit, I think, reach out and she was just talking about these big Russian celebrities and content creators online and how they're promoting pro-Russian propaganda. And that's something that we've seen in the US as well, where big celebrities have promoted disinformation, um, whether they're ill-informed or they're radicalized themselves. I think as the media environment gets more and more distributed and people turn to content creators for their news or meme accounts for their news, there's just more and more opportunity to spread unverified information. We have a huge problem with media literacy and I think it's getting worse and these platforms are making it worse. That's stuff that I'm all watching as this conflict unfolds. Taylor, thank you for speaking to me today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me.
My final guest this hour is Patrick Coffey, a correspondent at Business Insider on the media and advertising team. He was formerly editor-at-large at Adweek, where he led the agency's team and managed the agency spy blog. I spoke to him about how platforms and the broader ad tech ecosystem are handling this conflict and the ethical choices they face about how or whether to do business with Russian state media. Patrick Coffey, advertising correspondent at Insider. So Patrick, you had a piece this week with the headline, with Ukraine under attack, Google and big brands like Best Buy continue to fuel Russian propaganda. What's this story about? Well, it's essentially about how uh, Google continues to monetize sites that are directly or indirectly associated with the Kremlin by allowing them to use Google ad tools to run programmatic display ads. Lots of major Western brands end up running their ads on these sites unwittingly, essentially. So this has been going on for a a long time. Uh, Of course, it's more important in this particular moment of conflict. Um, But there have been warnings about this for, for some time. You point to statements from the State Department from a private entity, NewsGuard, you know, this, this has been on the radar for a bit. It has. It's been, it's been several years, really. I mean, it, it first it came up in, I want to say, 2017 when we would see ads running atop uh, ISIS videos on YouTube. And uh, then we began to hear a lot more about what they call brand safety, which uh, in the ad industry means essentially uh, different ways to ensure that brands that are paying to place their ads on these various platforms um, make sure that they they don't run atop uh, offensive content, which can include any number of things. And the definition is constantly expanding. But the point here was um, we, we essentially got a tip from someone in the media space saying, you should look into the fact that Google continues to do this, despite the fact that that they've been warned and they have taken some action. So it's, you know, they're they're not oblivious to this. Obviously, the both the brands and the general public should know that their ads are running on these sites and providing these sites with with ad revenue. So here we are in a situation, you know, now three days into uh, an illegal war on Ukraine, where these uh, Companies, including Google, also Facebook, um, are, it appears, beginning to take some action. You have a statement from uh, Mark Warner, who chairs the Senate Intelligence Committee, the uh, senator from Virginia, a Democrat. Uh, what did he tell you? Well, he said essentially that we've known for quite a while that, that Google continues to do this. And we've, we, he brought the issue up several years ago. Um, and that he uh, has encouraged Google to take action and that they have not to his to his satisfaction. And of course, he made a uh, or sent a set of letters yesterday to uh, the tech companies. Right. He did. He, he got very specific with them, uh, encouraging them to, among other things, demonetize these these Russian based media outlets. Um, you tweeted yesterday also about Reddit and some of the guidance that it's giving to its advertisers. Right. Uh, there's been a lot of, like we said, on the brand safety front, a lot of advertisers are very wary of their ads appearing on any sort of uh, material that's related to military conflict or they, they want to avoid all controversy. So essentially, they they tell their agencies, uh, make sure that our ads run only on like innocuous content. 
Um, and what, one way that agencies can do that is through uh, block keywords that they use to block. So it's like, if a story includes this word or phrase, then the ad will not run on it. It will be blacklisted, if you want to call it that. And that's what Reddit did. They had a very extensive list of keywords, including it was anything even tangentially related to Russia, Ukraine, uh, even like Joe Biden, World War Three. It's interesting to kind of look into the, the ways that the, the tech companies internally reassure advertisers of this. Now, obviously, the, the problem there is that then the legitimate news sites kind of lose out on, on ad revenue because so many brands say, yeah, we don't want our ads to run on. Like an agency guy said to me yesterday, all of our clients, we're, we're advising them to avoid hard news altogether. So that means that, that no, none of their ads will run on any CNN properties or you know, Fox News or the New York Times or anything like that. The news may be hard for some time. Right. That's true. Uh, and s- brands are sort of pausing. They're, they're moving their ads elsewhere, as it were. And you, you assume that that means, you know, everything from like uh, People Magazine to mom blogs or uh, w- whatever they can come up with where there are eyeballs, but there's not a potential for a controversy. Like you saw over the week, people flipped out because CNN was running some relatively jarring uh, juxtapositions that had ads, um, you know, the sort of standard ads. There was one for Applebee's. There was one for Jamaican tourism, I believe, uh, that were sort of inserted into this coverage of a illegal and deadly war that was people got uh, people. There was outrage on Twitter and uh, that recall that led uh, Applebee's to say that they were uh, pulling their ads from CNN and then CNN said that they were no longer going to run that ad format. So it's a bit of a tempest in a teapot. Um, but this is exactly what the advertisers are trying to avoid. Didn't expect Applebee's to have to make a statement regarding the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, but I guess no. that's 2022. No. And I, I'm sure Applebee's didn't want to do that either, but at the same time you, you have to ask yourself, I mean, a- Applebee's did choose to run, ads on CNN, ostensibly because they wanted to, you know, both promote their brand, but also align themselves with um, reputable news organizations. So it's, it's unfortunate that that, that, that happened. Maybe uh, in the context of your typical beat, um, tell me about your typical beat, um, but what are you going to be looking for in the coming uh, days ahead? Well, the main thing I think will be whether the major tech companies take, take action and update their policies. Um, you know, you said you saw like, for example, in late 2021, YouTube took action against uh, RT or Russia Today, which is one of the Kremlin uh, affiliated organizations. Um, but what this was, this was very different because they accused their them of spreading misinformation about COVID-19 and violating YouTube's terms of service on that front. And then uh, so they, they suspended one account and then RT, according to various reports, tried to get around that suspension by using an alternate YouTube account. And that was why they YouTube deleted the two accounts altogether. So you kind of have to compare that to what's happening now and think, you know, why was that a violation of YouTube's terms of service? Whereas the stuff that RT is running now is not a violation of the 
TOS because you've seen a lot of people tweeting screenshots of uh, RT videos of you know Putin um, making his address on Ukraine, and you'll have like ads for the UK government running over it. So obviously the UK government doesn't want to be subsidizing Putin's media arm, but that's what happens thanks to the YouTube algorithm. Just our messy ad ecosystem. Yeah, that's that's really what this is highlighting to, from my perspective. Patrick, thank you very much. Thank you. I can't end this episode without sharing my own perspective on the platforms and the role they play in this conflict. As images of the bloodshed and chaos dance across the tiny screens we carry with us, I want you to imagine it's September 1939. Germany has invaded Poland on the false premise that Poland has joined with Britain and France in a bid to attack it. Those assembled arise and stand to greet the arrival of the German Führer. The applause greets the Führer who has just arrived in the Karl Opera House to address the Reichstag, which has been called an extraordinary session. We are expecting that Prime Minister Goering, in a very few moments, will open formally the session in the Reichstag. Danzig was and is a German city. All these regions have only Germany to thank for their cultural development. But add a tweak to the timeline. Imagine there is a major set of publishers based in the United States who channel Hitler's propaganda campaign across the globe, including to a substantial American audience. Imagine Hitler's built an incredible capacity to manipulate media, use out-of-context images in film, create the impression of support by inventing false personas, and to engage in a variety of other tactics that have been observed to advance his aims, taking advantage of the capabilities these publishers provide and their lax enforcement of their own standards. Imagine that every official and government entity loyal to Hitler also has a deal with these publishers and their own means to easily reach a global audience instantly. Would you demand those publishers pull the plug on Hitler? Or would you defend the German state's right to some confused notion of free speech, even as Hitler sets out to destroy the lives of millions? That is the situation Google, Facebook, Twitter, and other U.S. tech firms are faced with right now, as they host, distribute, amplify, and in some cases help monetize Vladimir Putin's propaganda outlets, including Russian state media that are already registered as foreign agents, as well as the official accounts of Putin's government and its officials. With military vehicles pushing west across Ukraine, bombs falling on its cities, and blood already shed in its streets, Putin's propaganda machine continues to advance its message on American social media platforms, part of a wholly illegal, unconscionable attack. It's time for Mark Zuckerberg, Sundar Pichai, Parag Agarwal, and other Silicon Valley leaders to choose sides and to suspend these accounts until Russia ceases its attack and withdraws from Ukraine. The apps they operate are not fun and games. Their platforms are not an abstract realm of ideas and debate. They are vehicles for the exercise of power. This is war, 
and the lies and falsehoods that the Russian state media and Putin's officials will share in the next days across American social media platforms are weapons intended to legitimize the Kremlin's brutality, divide Ukraine's allies, and diminish any potential opposition. The Russian Federation will maintain plenty of official channels to get its message across, and journalists will continue to report on its statements. There is a wide variety of pro-Kremlin media and personalities that will be impossible to connect definitively to the Russian state, and other platforms, such as Telegram, will no doubt continue to serve as a useful tool to distribute propaganda and manipulate media. Suspended accounts can be restored if the situation or the Russian leadership changes in the future. But Silicon Valley, which has played a role in the corrosion and decline of democracy across the globe, as well as other human rights atrocities, must not assist Russia in its bid to deny Ukraine its sovereignty and freedom in this crucial moment. Its leaders cannot make up for what they have done to aid Putin and divide the West for years, but with a clear line crossed, they must now act. This is no longer political discourse. It is violence. It is vicious thuggery. If the Silicon Valley leaders will not act, they will again expose themselves as profiteers passively in league with authoritarian butchers. It's now or never. That's it for this special episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to our guests. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.